Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. In Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. While Labor Day was the unofficial end of summer, there's still about two weeks left to this season. And with that in mind, we'll hear from Matt Nixon of Acapella Books, reiterating his summer reading list. Plus, speaking of music, our series of local musicians in their own words, today featuring Brenda Nicole Moore. First, Meridian Herald is an Atlanta organization that combines music, history, literature, science, and spirituality. Their principal performance medium is the Meridian Chorale, conducted by Dr. Stephen Darcy. Confluence is a week-long event presented by Meridian Herald. From September 10th through 17th, they will host several events with a focus on environmental justice and climate change through the lens of the arts. A new oratorio by composer Stephen Darcy will premiere at Symphony Hall on Saturday evening. Joining me now via Zoom to talk more about their participation in Confluence, our renowned author and contributing opinion writer for The New York Times, Margaret Rankle. Georgia-based, award-winning author Janice Ray, and the celebrated Atlanta-based actor and educator Brenda Bynum. Welcome to City Lights. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you. Georgians take particular pride in works of the 19th century Macon-born poet and musician Sidney Lanier. His poem, The Martians of Glynn, inspired Stephen Darcy to write the oratorio. Brenda, please tell us about your role in helping create the oratorio. I had the full good fortune of going to Asaba Island in 2006 with a small group of supporters of Stephen Darcy. 
And it was to create an atmosphere in which he could begin the deep creative work of the oratorio. We stayed there in the old dormitory and every morning we would drive a truck out into the wilderness and drop him off among the alligators to commune alone all day long. <laughs> it was a scary thing because you could hear armadillos running through the dry palmetto leaves. It was weird. We would come back and enjoy the day. And at night we would read aloud the marshes of Glen. Sometimes I read it alone, other times I would make everyone there sit in a circle and read it together. And it was an extraordinary experience to be in on the very beginning of the heart of this glorious music. And it is indeed glorious. It is, it is our literary tradition. It's the beauty of our coast. It's everything. I have had the good fortune of working a bit with Mr. Darcy through the years on the if I may use the word confluence of the spoken word and music. And this has just been a privilege to be a part of this. Lanier believed that poetry and music shared the same underlying structure. Brenda, would you tell us about the poem and its impact? Well, when you read it, it feels like singing. And when you read it out loud, I would say, it, it makes me feel as if I am a singer, which I am not. And the, just the lyrical ebb and flow of the language and the words and the lines, it's like the sea washing up on the shore and back again. And, and just, it captures the beauty of our place, the beauty that's in our bones and our molecules down here in such an extraordinary way. And uh, he's gonna have a full orchestra and 60 singers and the incredible David Kusharan and I don't know who all to help bring that music to us, the music and the poetry. It will be glorious. Sidney Lanier served in the Confederate Army. He was an officer. Has there been any reassessment, reevaluation of his work, reconsideration of his importance to us. Well, Dwight Andrews, the incredible Dwight Andrews has written a wonderful essay on that very subject that I think will be printed in the program for this uh, event. And the first thing Dwight says is, my job as an artist is simply to create art. And then he asked, how can we understand the past in a way that liberates our present and future? He said that he has never, he has composed many musical settings of text written by authors about whom he knows little of their personal history. And he really went deep into the very thing that you just brought up, Lois, the reconsideration of, well, let's say Sidney Lanier's politics or understanding of who he was in society in the South at that time. And as Dwight puts it, it is a perfect opportunity to have a teachable moment, an opportunity for all of us to reconsider the intersection of art, race, and history. Now, I can't speak to whether or not I'm sure our, our literary people here can perhaps speak more to the possibility that there have been deep discussions about Lanier's background and the art coming out of it that we have to 
when we hear Tristan and Isolde, we have to think of Wagner and what his problems were. So I don't know. I can only answer with regard to what I know Dwight has considered in connection with this event. Well, there certainly is not only depth of thought from Dwight there, but also personal experience yes. and identity as an African-American. Yes, indeed. Margaret and Janice, you both will be in conversation with the Reverend Dr. Dwight Andrews on September 11th, discussing the environment, arts, and activism. Each of you is an award-winning author whose works explore the natural world and what we can learn from it. What are some of the topics you will address in conversation? Yeah, what we're talking about is the intersection of art, social justice, the environment, and how we might better use art to transform people's lives and encourage them to think about how we're living on the earth. That's it kind of in a nutshell, Lois. Would you talk about the connection between the environment and social justice in your work, each of you write beautiful literary works, and those subjects are most prominent. Would you talk a bit about how the confluence of those topics in your work? Mm -hmm. When I was a young woman, I fell in love with the natural world, and I could see even by the time I became an adult how broken that it is. So the two are fairly seamless in my work. I call myself a nature writer, an environmental writer, and that's because, you know, I'm, I'm at heart a repairer, a restorer. I believe that life is mythic. You know, I, I believe that all of us can lead great mythic lives, lives in which we are all learn to be more human. And part of being human is being in direct and intimate relationship with the earth, the beings of the earth, the spirits of the earth, and so forth. So the two are married in my mind. I know that most literature experts would say not to do this, to have an agenda with your work, but I always have. I think stories are transformative. I think that ability to transform is in the DNA of the narrative arc, because, you know, when you get to the top of the narrative arc, you get to this place where somebody learns something, somebody has an epiphany, and it's that epiphany that allows you to become a better version of yourself. And, and the earth to become a, vet, a better version of itself. And, and so that's where my work intersects with social justice right there in that, in that you know, the climax of the narrative arc, that epiphany. Mm. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitz, speaking with Atlanta actor and educator Brenda Bynum, along with the renowned authors Margaret Rankle and Janice Ray. 
Margaret, your recent New York Times piece, Summer's End, But Our Desires Last a Lifetime, reads like poetry. I really thought I was reading a poem, although it's also something of a diary entry. I'm curious about why you enjoy writing essays from a personal angle when you're also tackling issues of politics, the climate, animals, humanity. It's refreshing to see such a personal point of view, particularly in the New York Times, when your point of view is proudly regional. First of all, thank you for those kind words. I I did actually begin my writing life as a poet. And um, when I switched over to prose, for me, it felt like, well, as Robert Frost described, free verse. It's playing tennis with the nets down. (laughs) It, It was the same subjects, the same approaches I had been writing about as a poet. But in the yeah, just basically easier format of the of the English sentence. So that's just how I've always written prose. If I had to give it an aesthetic, if I had to defend it as a, a way of writing, I would say with Janice, really, that human beings are storytelling animals. And we reach more people and we make more of a difference. I believe when we tell them a story, then when we make a point by point argument and my intersection with the natural world is very personal. So it's just a natural way to write for me. That reminds me of a PBS NewsHour interview I remembered with you where you said, we are convinced when we are moved much more often than we are convinced when we are informed. How do you hope to move audiences at confluence with these conversations on environmental issues? I should say that when I um, made that statement about how, what a difference a moving piece of writing can be, I feel I need to issue a caveat. I don't ever know whether I've done that. I don't ever know if what I hope will happen with a piece of writing is what actually happens. And I think that this is one thing I had to let go of. I don't have any control over how an audience or how a reader will experience the words I've written. I can only just do my best. So I guess my ultimate goal in the writing I do for the New York Times is to persuade people that they are not powerless in the face of so much devastation that is human rot and that is unfairly distributed. The suffering is unfairly distributed it's just too easy for people to say, first of all, that's not my fault. And second of all, it's not my problem. So if we can, as environmental writers and editors and 
poets and painters and libretto composers, all of those things, if we can help to wake people up, that is really the only thing left to do anymore for the human race. We, we've gotten to a really dire point and that's what we need to be thinking about and how we need to be working. Margaret, let me add something to that. And I, I, I just, I love your sentiment there with, you know, that thought that statistics and facts don't change people. People change when their hearts are moved. And I think that's what I see in your work is that you, you're just constantly bringing people back to, you know, to, to that deep plane of the heart. Thank you. Some of them are moved in a way that's not very charming or helpful. <laughs> I have to say, but, but thank you. And, and I want to add one other thing. And that is, Yes, it is so imperative that we inform people and, you know, we bring the information and we try to move them forward. But I, I also think that there is another piece and that is courage building, that we have to be the flag bearers that help people see that they don't have to accept the, you know, the, dom the, the dominant paradigm of the narrative at work. You know, the advertisements, for example, that that with courage, you know, with the with personal power, which is the ability to make our own lives go well, we can personally make decisions for the environment. I know that's uh, that's a little convoluted and doesn't make sense, but I, but I think it's both things. I think I think there is some building that has to happen as well as some informing. Janice, I think that's beautifully put. That's how you're writing. That's how art can lead to activism. And certainly our environment needs more activism if we're going to mm -hmm. save this planet. Let me speak on activism for a minute because, you know, I've been an activist. I've been arrested for the climate a couple of times doing climate actions. But when I was writing a book about heirloom seeds called The Seed Underground, I happened to interview a seed saver in Vermont named Sylvia DeVotz. And she said, I see in activism a kind of futility. The real action is in doing. The real action is in making broken systems irrelevant. And, and I, I actually don't get out on the street so much these days. I try to live my life where it's, it's sort of like a radical home front kind of activism, you know? I think that is quite <laughs> admirable. Margaret, I know he, he's a hero for the ages and certainly a national treasure. We in Atlanta take particular pride in Congressman John Lewis. Would would you share your story about him? It's a a, a bit of an embarrassing story, but I will <laughs> I will share it. Congressman Lewis won the National Book Award just a few days before he was due to be in Nashville anyway to pick up the Nashville Public Library. Foundation Award 
which is a lifetime achievement award for writers. And I had already set up an interview with him related to, to that particular award. And then, of course, there was another award, a much bigger award that he won. And then in the middle of all of that was the 2016 presidential election, which just completely destroyed me. And just the idea that so much progress was about to be completely erased, not just in the environment, but in social justice issues, in every kind of what I think of as progress. And I asked Congressman Lewis as part of the interview how he held on, how he managed to maintain hope when so much of what he has worked towards, what he had spent his entire life working for kept being chipped away voting rights and social justice in general. And I was so embarrassed because I just started crying and tears were rolling down my cheeks and as he spoke and there was, I couldn't stop them, but he was very kind. He, he, he behaved as though he didn't notice that I was crying, which was very kind. And then he just spoke about how this is how justice always works. It's never a straight line. Yes, to echo the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, yes, the arc of the moral universe does bend toward justice. But that doesn't mean it's a smooth arc or that there are never any stops and starts, any backward twists. And he, but he truly believed that we were better than we have been in before and that we will be better still. We just have to keep the faith. Renowned authors Margaret Rankle and Janice Ray, with favorite Atlanta actor and educator Brenda Bynum. Meridian Herald's Confluence 2022 is September 10th through the 17th. The event locations vary, and more information is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. In a moment, we'll celebrate my favorite pastime and preferred form of exercise, reading. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. 
For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Wrights. It's great to have you along. Monday was Labor Day, which many consider the unofficial end of summer. There's still about two weeks left to this season. And with that in mind, let's listen back to my conversation with Matt Nixon of Acapella Books. He gave us his summer reading recommendations in May, though there's no expiration date for great reading. Here, Matt Nixon explains why he loves working in an independent bookstore. There's no joy better in the world for me than finding a book I love and being able to put it in people's hands and uh, then turn them turn around and them loving it too. I love that act too, Matt. The idea of sharing something that's been so meaningful in the form of a book is, is unique. Do you keep track of how many books you read a month or a year? I do. You know, I just log every book I read online into the uh, the popular portal owned by the bookseller mega giant that we don't want to talk about on this show <laughs> as an independent bookseller, but um, I, I do keep track of it. And how many do you read in a year? Probably about 70, mm, okay. somewhere in that neighborhood. Do you have a favorite genre? I read a lot of literary fiction that is really my wheelhouse always looking for discovery i'm fortunate enough having worked for independent bookstores for several years that i built some good relationships with some uh, editors and publisher reps from various publishers and uh, I, i'm very fortunate in the sense that they know me and what i like to read so they curate things and send it to me and say matt you're gonna love this book and they are rarely wrong on that so I'm always looking for new authors, new discovery, and uh, um, got several debut authors that I'm excited about sharing with you today. Yeah, let's get to the list. You sent a list that includes well-known, highly anticipated books, as well as some lesser-known titles. Let's start with the high-profile authors. What can you tell us about Sea of Tranquility by... Emily St. John Mandel. Well, first of all, what I'd say about Sea of Tranquility is it's it's wonderful. It's life-affirming. She's gotten a lot of press of recent. Her uh, 2014 novel, which was her fourth one, uh, Station Eleven, was long-listed for the National Book Award, but it shot back into popularity in 2020 because it's uh, pandemic-related. And then her follow-up to that was The Glass Hotel. Sea of Tranquility, real Emily St. John Mandel fans will know that she likes to sort of bring small characters from one book and have them reappear in larger roles in another one. So it'll scratch that itch for Emily St. John Mandel fans. Um, you're going to see a lot of connections to, to her previous books. But it's a bit of a, a time-hopping narrative structure 
But um, what really gives it resonance is that uh, one of the areas that they speak uh, that is in the book is in uh, takes place in 2203, 2203. And uh, there is an author who wrote a best-selling book about uh, life in a pandemic, which like Station Eleven um, was. <laughs> and then her coming back into popularity because of the of a pandemic. So it really speaks to our times and like what it means to live through a pandemic and and the hope and the joy of life that can still happen and what happens after that. Young Mungo by Douglas Stewart is a gay love story set in a working class Glasgow neighborhood in the 1990s. What else can you tell us about this story? Another one, just wonderful. For those who read Douglas Stewart, the author of Young Mungo, uh, his 2020 uh, Booker Prize winner, uh, Shuggy Bain, which was about my favorite book of that year. It's a lot of the same milieu, that hard scrabble, Thatcher era, Glasgow. It's got a real tactile sense of place. And just the the sadness and futility of, you know, the people who the shipbuilding jobs have left. And there's just a lot of desperation in the air. There's, um, you know, sort of the sectarian violence, just the meaningless sectarian violence of teenage kids who are Protestant, just waiting to beat up Catholic kids. And in the midst of all this, you have Mungo, who, you know, has a torn up, a separated family, uh, alcoholic mother, and he finds in a neighbor, James, uh, who's Catholic, and it becomes a friendship that's bonded over this uh, racing pigeons. And then they begin to discover what those feelings might be, and, and they're forbidden. And it's, it's just a wonderful story of uh, the flower and the cracked sidewalk that hope can exist in such a toxic Place. Yeah. Olga dies dreaming sounds very engaging. How would you describe this book? <laughs> Olga dies dreaming is it's just all over the place in a wonderful way. You know, readers jumping into this one can expect a love story that's, you know, complicated by family trauma and past experiences, ideas of um, place and status. You know, Olga grew up, her parents were Puerto Rican revolutionaries in the 1970s. And, you know, the dad sort of drifted out. Uh, he was a Vietnam vet. And he sort of drifted out and got hooked on drugs. And his mom uh, kept it real. She was a revolutionary and it disappeared from Olga's life at a young age. And Olga also has a brother who's a U.S. member of Congress who's may or may not be dealing with a closeted situation that he's being held, uh, some powerful business interests are holding over his head because, you know, the machismo in the Puerto Rican community doesn't feel like he could come out. But it's it's also a glimpse into sort of high-end, ultra-elite wedding planners. And it's got these, these great sequences of Olga trying to leverage her wedding planning business into television opportunities, morning show appearances, and things like that. It, that really has a, a sharp critique on some of the reality television and daytime television. So it's just sort of a grab bag. You get a lot of Puerto Rican history, Puerto Rican culture in New York, and, and sort of the state of what's happening in Puerto Rico ever since the hurricane a few years back. So it, it's just sort of a wild mix. It's a lot of fun. Ah. 
Jennifer Egan is a rock star in literary fiction and popular, too. She won a Pulitzer Prize in 2011 for A Visit from the Goon Squad, and now she has written a sequel. How does her new book compare with that novel? It is a very worthy, somewhat sequel. It's very much constructed in the spirit of Goon Squad, which, you know, what everyone sort of was struck with by Goon Squad was this wild, disparate, cacophony chorus of voices that were distinct and, and brought different perspectives and just sort of the rhythm and the patois and, and, and their viewpoints were just so distinctive and, and, and vital and alive. And she's really captured that again in the candy house. Some of the characters that you know from Goon Squad do reappear. You certainly would not have to have read, read Goon Squad first. It stands alone very well. And what she does deals with in this book, uh, in the candy house is it's really about sort of where there's, it's a light, lightly speculative fiction, but it's really talking about where we are right now in our relation to technology, online communities, uh, the metaverse and, and those such things and where we could go. And at the end, you know, uh, without sort of giving away her thesis or anything, she really tries to speak to what the value is and what is meaningful in human interaction and sort of where technology can augment that and where technology undermines that. Um, this is not sort of a scary cautionary dystopic. It's more of a thought experiment, but again, it's alive with, with various voices and, and people in different professional milieus, some who work in the tech industry, some who, who don't and work in other areas and what technology can do to preserve humanity and what it can't do. It's mm. a great read. Now for your under the radar recommendation. Oh, good. My favorite. <laughs> From Hollywood with love, the rise and fall and rise again of the romantic comedy by Scott Meslow. Sounds like a fun read. What did you enjoy most about this book? It was fantastic. It's a nonfiction book. It's the one nonfiction book I did send over to you that I was excited to talk about. Here's where I'd start with it. This book takes romantic comedy seriously. I read a ton about movies and film. That's what I enjoy reading outside of, you know, fiction for a lot of reasons, sexism being primarily one of them, since romantic comedies primarily appeal to women. The, you know, film scholarship doesn't take it seriously, really. And that's sort of a jumping off point for Scott Meslow in this book is he does take it seriously. Um, he also defines, starts out by, you know, sort of definitionally describing what a romantic comedy is and what it is not. A lot of movies that are just female-centric movies that are comedies get grouped in with it, like Legally Blonde or things like that. So after he sort of level set, here's why romantic comedies are important, and here is uh, what they are and what they are not. And as he reclaims a sort of marginalized genre, he then goes through sort of, he, he's really only interested in the modern romantic comedy, starting with 1989, I believe, when Harry met Sally, and sort of trace it through to the present time. And he goes through, and at this point, it's just this, this fun and juicy inside story of 10 or 15 different movies that he decides to spotlight. You know, everything from the behind the scenes stories, like he talks about the genesis of 
Pretty Woman, how it started out as this gritty indie drama and how it turned into the movie that, you know, we all know it is now. Um, he also talks about the cultural and the critical reception of it and then sort of tries to explain the contours of history and why these movies were this popular at this time and how all these movies were in conversation with previous romantic comedies, what they've done differently, how they built on the genre and uh, how they moved on and sort of the, the reasons why romantic comedies can't really be found at the, at the movie theater anymore and have moved online. It's just a great read. And for anyone who likes movies, full stop period, I would, I would recommend it. And especially if you like romantic comedies, you'll find a lot of great stuff to love. Mm. Girls They Write Songs About by Carlene Bauer will be released June 21st. What angle does the author take on complexities of female friendship? Carlene Bauer is a debut author, and this was one uh, that one of my contacts put in my hand and said, Matt, you need to read this. You're going to like this. The milieu is set in late 90s, or it begins these two friends, Rose and Charlotte. Rose is sort of brash and is going to conquer the world, and Charlotte's more sort of bookish and reserved, but confident in her writing abilities. And they meet at a, a music magazine in 90s New York. So you get that whole scene, turn of the century New York. You know, they start out as sort of frenemies and then become best friends. And it just sets into this 20 plus years of rhythms of just the subtle and stinging observations of the emotional balances and the the peaks and valleys that can come in a female friendship through marriage, divorce, childbirth, professional disappointment, and how they grow apart, but but what they still mean to each other over that time. It's really wonderful and just it's just unflinchingly honest in ways that I find, you know, you know, the saying, I, I feel like I've been seen. Mm -hmm. um, it, some of the, you know, internal emotions and dialogues that the characters talk about, we primarily follow Charlotte, the more bookish one, and the things that she is able to, you know, her character confesses to herself, um, you know, are, are not necessarily pretty. They're, they're a little ugly at times, and she can be selfish and and knows that, but it's very human. Hmm. And um, it just real, really plugged into all the different emotional balances and states that exist in, you know, in people. One of the authors you've listed is a former acapella bookseller. Ah, yes. And Atlanta author, Samantha Jane Allen. Her debut novel, Pay Dirt Road, was released in April. Tell us about this mystery. Well, this is a great summer read, Lois, I tell you. It is, you know, a literary whodunit. You know, we know how that goes. But what Samantha has done with this book, it's she's elevated it and, and taken it to some, you know, slightly unexpected places. And what I would, the two things I'd really point out about this, just to give you a little idea of what it's about. Annie McIntyre is the lead character. She's 22 years old, just graduated from college in the big city and had to move back home. Doesn't really have career prospects at the moment. She moved back home to her small town of Garnett, Texas. And then one of her coworkers at a restaurant she works out ends up missing and ultimately dead. So it becomes a mystery of, you know, what happened to her co-worker, Victoria. Her grandfather, Leroy, is a private detective, former sheriff, sort of a legend in town. So Annie sets out investigating. And what really sets it apart is that, one, just a tremendous sense of place. 
you can smell that the rain when it hits the dust. And she just does such an artful, the author does such just an artful job of, you know, portraying those conflicted feelings that many of us have about our hometowns, that, you know, love, hate, frustration, anger, how we love its embrace, but buck up against its restrictiveness. And <laughs> Annie is 22 years old, investigating a murder, and she's not a particularly good investigator, but she leads with her heart, she cares. And one of the things that was so exciting to me was how Sam used this really artfully really used her like experiences as a young woman to sort of guide her instincts and um, help her sort of uncover what happens. It's just a really great read that's very well done. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Wrights, speaking with acapella bookseller Matt Nixon. You said that your favorite novel from this year is A Tiny Upward Shove by Melissa Chadburn. That's high praise from you, Matt. What makes this book compelling? It's remarkable. And I'd even go so far, Lois, to say it's not only the best thing I've read this year, I don't know that I've read five better things over the last several years. Wow. This is a debut author, Melissa Chadburn. And <laughs> there's no way I'll do justice to the beauty and grace that's in, that's exists within these pages. But just to give you a little sense of what it's about, the book opens and our main character is a woman, young woman named Maria Salas. Um, and it opens at the moment of her death at the hands of another person, of a man. And as she's dying, we take on the viewpoint of what we come to find out is the Aswang. I'm not sure I'm pronouncing that correctly. It's, it's a Filipino myth of the spirit. And then, you know, we're guided then through Maria's life, three generations of women, her grandmother who's from the Philippines and her mother who grows up in Southern California where Maria did and, and just as we go through this journey, we just, it just a heartbreaking exploration of the failures that, you know, our systems can have for those uh, people who exist on the margins, you know, that hardworking, trying to make a difference, one thing sets them back and, and how um, that can be, you know, just devastating and, and how a life can slide from that point, you know, without giving away how Mar Maria ends up at the hands of this murderer. The book also gives us glimpses into his life. And uh, not until the author's note at the end did I know that it was based on a real murderer, uh, a guy named Willie Picton, uh, who was a pig farmer who confessed to murdering 49 women in southern Canada, like Vancouver, south of Vancouver. And this was this book was born out of a passion by the author. She's worked in social services, so she knows what, what she's talking about. And she just so magnificently brings it to life and gives the story of people like Maria such grace. Hmm. I'm getting choked up talking about it. Oh, my. Don't usually think of Canada and horrific crime, but this is exceptional. It really is. Are there books you're eager to recommend that will be released later this summer? 
Oh, absolutely. There's one I'm really excited about. A few years ago, Alexis Shapkin, the author, put out her debut novel, Saint X, which was one of my favorite things I read that year. And it's now being adapted into a miniseries by Hulu. Her follow-up, I was so excited to get it. It's called Elsewhere. And (laughs) this one is, it's, it's fantastic. It is just, here's the premise. It's sort of set in this place that's sort of out of time. You can't really tell when it is, much less where it is. And it's a society that doesn't seem very technologically advanced. Think more like uh, Mennonites, that Mm. type of thing. But every so often on an irregular schedule, women, especially mothers, vanish, just disappear without a trace. And they have strange traditions and rituals that go along with this. And, and of course, no one can explain why they're disappearing. But of course, this over the years, this culture has come up with reasons. And, you know, there's whispers about, oh, why she ended up. And it all comes down to, you know, obviously them not being a woman well enough uh, is why that they were the ones who got taken away. Mm-hmm. And then the book goes in just a sideways turn that you would not expect. And it is, it's almost fable-like. It's just hypnotic, spellbinding. Just here's one of my standards, Lois. I love reading and I've always got a book, at least one going, but the really good ones, the ones that I can be at work or doing something else and think, ooh, I can't wait to get back to that book tonight. This is one of those books. Matt Nixon of Acapella Books from our conversation this past May. More information about the books Nixon recommended is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Coming up, our series of local artists in their own words, speaking of music. Today with Brendan Nicole Moore, the next artist in W.A.B.E.'s Sounds Like ATL concert at City Winery. Amplifying Atlanta, this is 90.1 W.A.B.E. This is City Lights on W.A.B.E. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for joining me. It's time now for our segment, Speaking of Music, where we get to hear from Atlanta musicians in their own words. Hi, my name is Brenda Nicole Moore. I'm a singer-songwriter here in Atlanta. I would describe my music more like a feeling than like a genre. I guess it is sort of jazz, folk, soul. Take another trip on started in music here in Atlanta at the age of 12 actually. I started singing with like different girl groups, R&B. I've sang background for so many different Atlanta-based artists. I always like to say Atlanta music scene has raised me artistically. Atlanta is my my music parent or <laughs> my music home. I've had the opportunity to learn and grow here and I love Atlanta music scene so much. I love our community. Had you think this righteousness and 
think being human, we experience all kinds of emotions and some of the strongest emotions are things that we write songs about, right? So love, hope, desire, heartbreak, all of these very strong emotions I'm, I'm inspired by. So I draw from my life, I draw from the people around me, but I'm also just inspired by going out and hearing other artists play. It's very inspiring and uplifting. The song I'm submitting is called Take a Little Trip, which is a cover of a Minnie Riperton song that Stevie Wonder wrote for Minnie. And Minnie Riverton is one of my all-time favorite singers. And the band and I were <laughs> kind of scared to cover this song, but I think we served it justice and I'm proud of what we did. The second song I'm submitting is called Find Your Way, which is one of my favorite songs from my, the last record I put out during the pandemic called Marrow. I think it's just a really inspiring song that talks about, you know, when life is giving you all kinds of curveballs and you're not really sure what you're doing, you don't really have a plan. This song is to remind you that even when you don't have a plan, there is a plan. The universe will give you what you need and the universe will listen and respond. And that's what that song is about. Atlanta has definitely influenced my music. I remember when I first started going up to New York to work with musicians up there and I'd bring my music from, you know, what I created here in Atlanta. They'd be like, oh my gosh, this sounds so Atlanta. And I was like, what does that mean? <laughs> I don't know what that, what does Atlanta sound like? But I guess it's just like this soul kind of vibe where even if it's jazz, even if it's pop even if it's you know rock there's there's this kind of soulful laid back element to it I'm so proud to call Atlanta my artistic home I have done the New York the LA and traveled around but I always come back to Atlanta because our community here is unlike any other. We genuinely support each other. We love to be collaborative. We are so welcoming. And that's just hard to find in a music community. And I think the most important thing is that 
Atlanta is so open. The possibilities are endless. I always like to say whatever you want to do, Atlanta is a place that you can make it happen. Brendan Nicole Moore and our series, Speaking of Music. Brenda is performing on Tuesday, September 13th at City Winery as part of WABE Sounds Like ATL concert series. More information is on our website, wabe.org. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Monday at 11 a.m., Dakin Hart, curator of the Noguchi Museum and Foundation in New York. Hart will tell us about the history behind Isamo Noguchi's Piedmont Park playground sculpture, Playscapes, plus... Dragon Con might be over for the year, but the stories left behind are just beginning. We'll hear about a young chess-playing Jawa who raises thousands of dollars for charity each year at the Con. City Light's senior producer is Kim Drobes. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. We'd love for you to connect with City Lights on social media. We're at WABE City Lights on Facebook and Instagram. And you can follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to WABE Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org donate and become a member right now. And thank you.